This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast, here tonight with another installment in our latest series, The Case I Can't Forget. Tonight, I am beyond delighted to be joined by a repeat customer, if you will, a friend of the show, Dr. Mike Lawton, who was on previously talking about technical excellence in neurosurgery, and he was kind enough to grace us with his presence again to share a story from his practice uh, for you listeners now. Dr. Lawton, of course, is a neurosurgeon who needs no introduction, author of the seven series of books. Uh, lately, the Barrow has its uh, base camp series out, their academic rounds. Dr. Lawton is a leader in the field of cerebrovascular neurosurgery. Uh, sir, welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Thank you, JP. And um, I just want to congratulate you and Mike on a tremendous podcast. You know, we um, had thought about the idea of doing a podcast um, in the midst of all the COVID uh, uh, shutdowns. And um, you guys stepped in and filled the need so beautifully that we abandoned our plan. So my hat's off to you. <laughs> well, thank you. Great minds think alike. And uh, Dr. Wang, and you certainly have great minds. Uh, I'll tell you, as a fan of podcasts and a fan of your books, if you put one out, I will listen. Um, but with that, we were talking a bit before the recording started about the story you wanted to bring tonight. And you mentioned it's more than one specific story, kind of a, a category. So I'm really curious to hear what you mean by that. Why don't we get right into it? Right. Well, so um, when you first reached out and asked me to talk about the case I can't forget, there, of course, were a lot of um, cases that went through my mind. There was, you know, the giant basilar tip aneurysm that I did um, hypothermic circulatory arrest for the first time. There's mm -hmm. the AVM that gets away from you and bleeds torrentially and you fight for hours to get the patient off the table. And there are those great uh, exotic bypasses that um, I, I love doing and certainly can't forget those. But um, the category really that keeps sticking in my mind um, and really haunts me are the um, the giant basilar trunk aneurysms. These are a category of patient that um, are just really tough. They come into your office and you recognize them immediately. They usually come in in a wheelchair. Um, they're debilitated by the progression of their disease. And on the one hand, you want to tell them to turn around and go home. Uh, but on the other hand, they've come to you as the last resort. The, uh, the person, maybe even one of just a few lone people in the world that are willing to, to take on their case. And they're looking for the Hail Mary. And, um, and so that's really the, the type of patient that, um, for me, stands out in my can't forget uh, category. Um, the, these um, um, cases are hard. You know, uh, every surgeon has what um, uh, has been called the surgeon's graveyard. And uh, the, the, the cruel thing about our selective memory is that we expect a lot of ourselves and we never remember um, all of the good outcomes and the great successes that we have. But what we do remember are the tragic failures. And, and these uh, giant basilar trunk aneurysms are, are certainly uh, an example of that, where there are a lot of failures. And, um, you know, the, uh, the case that I um, selected really was uh, one of these that I just did a few weeks ago. And it was uh, a guy um, uh, mid fifties who, uh, uh, came in, uh, was transferred in as a, as a, um, emergency, uh, room admission. And, uh, you know, we admitted him and, um, 
had one of these classic three, three and a half centimeter basal trunk aneurysms compressing his pons and midbrain. Uh, mm. The vertebral basal junction, as all these cases have, was um, pushed up, both fed into the, the body of this, this aneurysm. And, you know, he was progressively deteriorating from that. Of course, he had two beautiful daughters. They're both in medical school um, and uh, were, uh, were, were our students in medical school. And, and so they're very well versed in his pathology and, and his condition. And, and um, anyway, um, this is the kind of patient that walks in. They, um, they don't have a very good prognosis. If you do nothing, they're like glioblastoma. They're dead in two years. And um, mm. if you do something, um, uh, you're taking on incredible risk. And, um, um, and so, uh, you know, I've really been interested in this disease because um, it really does represent that Mount Everest for the vascular neurosurgeon. Um, it's one of those cases where we just um, haven't been able to figure it out. Um, many people have tried, dating all the way back to Drake and, and all of the greats. Um, and um, a lot who have gone down that road have simply abandoned it. Um, you know, I, I've kind of um, viewed bypass surgery as the answer to this disease because um, this idea of distal bypass and um, uh, aneurysm occlusion, either proximal or distal, so that the flow reverses, I've always viewed that as the way. Uh, it works so well for giant aneurysms in other locations. Um, and so um, I've always felt like if we could modify that basic concept and apply it to the basilar trunk, we'd have something here. And um, we, we've, we've made some progress. The, the first batch of cases I did uh, in these uh, patients, they, they almost all died. Um, uh, in mm. fact, I don't think any of them survived. Uh, they were the simple um, ECIC bypass to the SCA or the PCA. And then we'd go in and we'd do coil occlusion of the verts and reverse the flow and use the pica to pull some flow down the, the trunk. But um, inevitably, they did poorly. Um, we then tried um, uh, a different form of bypass. I tried the Japanese bypass, the vert to PCA through a uh, posterior fossa exposure. And, um, and that didn't work very well either. All those patients died. Uh, and finally, what I settled on was um, the uh, M2P2 bypass, which was the um, a high flow interposition graph using the Sylvian Fisher as the donor and dumping into the PCA to give a high flow um, revascularization of the upper posterior fossa circulation. And then doing a, um, a clip occlusion um, uh, initially distally, um, and more recently we've been doing them proximally. Um, but um, the problem with these is the perforators and their um, propensity to, to thrombose, even despite having good flow, um, you know, we, we keep um, having perforator infarcts and um, severe complications or death. Um, I published on this, you know, our mortality doing this last rendition was around 50-50, uh, which is really horrible odds for surgery. Uh, you never right. want to make a living off of a case that's only a 50-50 shot. Uh, but, um, you know, in this last case, you know, this was a great example of a, um, a complicated surgery. I did a M2P2 bypass, um, really nice uh, tissues, great graft, um, really solid uh, uh, bypass went in there. And um, I added a quasi approach because I've begin 
beginning to feel like if we can directly occlude these proximally, um, that might be better than the distal occlusions that were 50-50. And uh, so I did a quasi approach, got the um, verts into my field of view and was able to shut both of those down for a proximal uh, occlusion. And, you know, again, um, this is one that didn't go well. Um, and so um, it's, a, it's a really tough position because you, you go from that incredible high of doing a really tough operation that's a beautiful and complex surgery um, uh, to the patient uh, not waking up. And, uh, you know, you, you have a, a family that's uh, stunned. You have, um, you know, your whole surgical team that's disappointed. Um, and it's just a, a roller coaster ride of, um, of great surgery and really catastrophic outcome. Um, you know, it, it is one of the great tortures in, in our field in neurosurgery that, as you point out, you can have this technically excellent, a technically perfect even procedure, and then the nervous system is fickle and the tissue is delicate, and the outcome that you get functionally, clinically, is not always reflective of what you achieve operatively. Uh, you mentioned that this patient has had children who were in medical school, and, you know, uh, we have listeners at all levels of training here, obviously most within the field of neurosurgery, but I think anyone listening can appreciate the complexity of not just the pathology, but the treatment plans and these different strategies and bypasses that you're describing. So I wonder when you're talking with the family of this patient in particular, who who has children young in the medical field, you've been down this road before as you say, and you know that the odds of success are a coin toss. How do you talk to this family about what they can expect for their father? And I guess, importantly, what will happen if you do nothing, but then what they can expect with you doing your best possible for him? Yeah, it's a great, um, it's a great uh, question. And I, I wish that um, uh, all of my residents and, and others could, could see, um, that conversation that we had, because, you know, I, I've studied my results. I know it's a 50, 50 proposition. And so I spend a lot of time, uh, in advance talking about the, um, all the things that could go wrong, the, um, high chances of, of death in this situation. And, um, I, I really try and make a, a connection with both the patient and family, because I know if, if I'm on the other side of that coin toss, I want to make sure that, um, I was as clear as I possibly could have been. And, um, you know, in this particular case, um, it's a great example of how you, you walk away from that conversation feeling like um, uh, we were clear uh, and everybody understood, um, most importantly, the patient. But in this case, uh, since you're asking the daughters as well, uh, but, you know, um, even despite that, when things didn't go well, um, the, the, um, in this case, the, the daughters were, were terribly upset. And um, I think it mm -hmm. just speaks to the fact that um, uh, you can hear all of this stuff and there's a certain uh, compartmentalization. Like you, you, you look at those odds and you think, I'm not going to be on the bad side of the coin toss. I'm going to do okay with this. And um, there's this real denial, even despite being in the field and knowing that, um, that we try and be objective. And I think in in this case, it was particularly hard. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just a matter of, um, um, again, having, ha having developed a connection in advance. 
Yeah, such, such an important conversation to have for, for all things that we do in neurosurgery, but particularly such um, a delicate and fickle procedure as this. Hearing you talk about it, it you know, my mind goes back to early in this conversation, you talked about this pathology, these basilar trunk aneurysms, and how so many surgeons turn their backs on it and, and wouldn't risk walking down that road. But as you said, you know, you're the end of the line and you have, you could say, an obligation to attempt to treat these patients when no one else will. I wonder if you could cast your mind back to that stage in your career when you first felt ready to try and tackle this pathology. Can you remember that period of time um, where you were along your professional course? And, and if you could even remember the first patient you felt comfortable going for it? Yeah, I think um, bypass surgery, JP, is like um, this ladder that you climb. And mm -hmm. the first bypasses that you do are STA, MCA bypasses. They're right on the cortical surface, and they're pretty straightforward. You can feel confident doing those cases. And as you go through your career, you start diving deeper. You might do an STA to uh, M2, um, or you might do an STA to PCA or um, and get down in the ambient cistern there. And, and then finally, you know, you get to these kinds of cases where you don't question whether you can do it technically. It's really more about whether your strategy is right and, and whether you've mm -hmm. actually thought through the disease and the therapy. And, and that's where this is like this incredible chess match where, you know, I, I feel like um, uh, I've gotten to the point where I, I can, um, think through this, this disease process and I, I understand what I'm trying to accomplish, but I, I can't quite control all of the, the knobs and whistles on the control panel. And, um, right. and that's where it's frustrating. But, um, you know, my feeling is that um, um, th there have to be some of us um, who, who are willing to stick our necks out and try and go down a road that others don't want to take on or, or have abandoned. And, and I think that's sort of the... Uh, the pioneer spirit that needs to remain a part of neurosurgery. I think um, um, it's easy in this day and age to shy from risk and not do anything that's going to potentially cause harm or get us into trouble. But at the same time, you know, I think back on um, on uh, Charlie Drake when he published his first four cases of basilar aneurysms. Two of those patients died. That was the same 50-50 coin toss that I'm talking about here. And, and yet he persisted. And, and today, or maybe less today, but in, in a bygone era, you know, basilar aneurysm surgery became the way to treat that disease. And um, it, it was through his pioneering efforts that we got to that mountaintop. And, um, you know, I feel like there's certain of these challenges like um, the basilar trunk aneurysm, or if you look in tumor surgery, um, the GBM, we, we shouldn't be shying away from these huge daunting uh, challenges, these difficult diseases, because somewhere out there, there's going to be a solution. And I think um, there just need to be enough who um, stay in the game and keep at it. And eventually we'll iterate, we'll find um, uh, uh, a way to build our skill level up, or we'll gain that insight in, uh, in our understanding of the pathology and, and eventually um, crack the glass ceiling and find a way up there. That is such an interesting and I think important observation. I mean, obviously I'm saying this is someone very early walking down the path of neurosurgical training and someone who is myself 
daily, trying just to learn the moves and just to learn the techniques. But I think you really well pointed out there that what separates the student from the master is not just the ability of the hands and the ability to execute what you what you desire, but it's the strategy. It's knowing what to do, not just the ability to do it. I think you see that across any technical discipline, be it neurosurgery, any subspecialty of neurosurgery, um, even musicians. You know, I, I play the guitar and we often talk about how there's these people who finger their fingers just fly across the neck and they can play a thousand notes per minute. But then you hear someone who knows which note to play at just the right time. And that's what separates the art from, you know, technically impressive manipulation of the strings. And so I wonder, as, as you're reaching this place where, as you said, you, you feel this push to stick your neck out and to keep climbing that mountain and to get to the other side of it for the patients, thinking about the stories from early in your career, thinking about this recent patient, what goes through your mind? What do you think will go through your mind the next time you see one of these patients? Yeah, well, th it's, a, it's a great topic because... Um, we all have to ask ourselves what kind of career we want to have. Do we want to just um, uh, practice and perform the standard operations and do the, the routine things that make up neurosurgery? Or do we want to be like you described in the guitar player analogy? Do we want to be the ones writing the new music? And, um, and I think um, what makes it exciting for me, uh, being a neurosurgeon, is, is being uh, able to innovate and bring something new to the to the specialty that didn't exist before me, and and that's what I think about. You know, so when that next patient comes through my door, or into the emergency room, um, I'm thinking about, you know, this last case of mine, the one that didn't go well, and how can I, how can I tweak it in some way, to address the, this latest shortfall or this latest deficiency, and and how can we modify what we just did to um, to find that way around the problem. And, and that's really what this um, is all about, is, is to commit to um, making a contribution and finding that breakthrough. And then um, uh, with each step of the way, um, making a small iteration, a, a tweak that will create a new insight. And I, I envy the days of Drake, you know, in, in his era, every giant basilar aneurysm was going to London, Ontario, and he had this concentration of, of case material that allowed him to, to do just that, to um, mm -hmm. learn from his last case, try something different, um, make a small step forward, maybe take two steps back with the next one, but ultimately synthesize all this into some new paradigm. And, um, and that's what I think of. I, I, um, I get really hurt um, when things don't go well. And um, um, they're like festering wounds. And, and all of these patients that I was thinking about to try and talk about, I, I, can, uh, I, I can feel the wounds. Uh, it's it's not an easy, not an easy um, proposition to take on. But I, I do feel like um, um, if you do it and you have that spirit about your practice, then um, you, you, might, you might be the one who breaks through it. And, um, and there's huge upside in that. Hmm. Well, Dr. Lawton, if anything our listeners can take away from this story is that the proper motivations can keep uh, pushing someone further and further up that mountain, and clearly those motivations keep uh, driving you forward. 
I want to thank you for coming back on the show, giving us your time and sharing these insights from uh, the path that's led you to this point in your career. Um, again, as I said, I'm frankly a fan of your work. I enjoy reading um, both your academic writings and, you know, as we said on the last podcast, Master with Scalpel and Pen, your seven series, the most recent of which seven bypasses is obviously very relevant to this discussion. And I would encourage our listeners to pick it up, take a look through, and as I will be doing, uh, you know, read the relevant chapters to try to help uh, make sense of and, and glean some details on exactly the pathology we're talking about here tonight. Uh, Dr. Lawton, thank you so much for coming back on the Neurosurgery Podcast. And JP, thanks for having me. Congratulations on a great uh, podcast, a, a real nice um, addition to our uh, neurosurgical world. Wow. So as usual, uh, JP, Mike Lawton does not disappoint. There's a reason why he's held in such high esteem. And he really is talking about the pinnacle of what we do technically, right? I mean, it, he, he described a situation, a scenario that encompassed not only those social elements, but the technical and the biological pieces of what we can really be up against. It is really daunting. And you have to have your hat off to, to, to the early neurosurgeons like Harvey Cushing, who had such high mortality rates, but they persevered despite probably a lot of criticism. I'm guessing a lot of folks criticized um, Drake and Cushing and Dandy and, and, and these pioneers that are, in our, that are in our field that built it, right? Right. I mean, it's, it's inherently true. Anytime, you know, we always talk about the, the sphere of human knowledge and as it expands, the border gets ever wider, right? The, the circumference of the circle increasing with the area of it. And Dr. Lawton is obviously talking about these things maybe a few steps beyond that border and that limit of knowledge where he's pushing that boundary further. And of course, in a technical discipline like surgery, where your craft and the, the material of your craft is not just woodworking or, or stone masonry, but you're working with human bodies. And in our case, the organ system that generates consciousness, that generates awareness, uh, communicativity, then obviously any little thing that is new, possibly experimental and has that inherent risk of failure is going to face grave criticism, as you say. Well, you know, it's it's fascinating to me. He talks about this spirit of adventure. And, and I want to go further with what you're saying, JP, which is it's ironic almost that on the one hand, we're talking about very, very sensitive and low tolerance environments like the brain and spinal cord. So you would think that any deviation from what's accepted would be anathema, right? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we are exploratory. And, and I, I talked to a lot of other surgeons and other subspecialties, and there there is no parallel. Uh, there really isn't a parallel today, at least, where people are trying new things. I think cardiac surgery in its renaissance era in the 1960s and 70s was like that. Right. But you, you just don't see that. You don't talk to ENT people like, well, let me tell you about this brand new stuff that everybody's trying and another group's doing this and we argue about it all the time. I mean, I know there's innovation, but it happens very differently, and I don't think it happens as independently it does in, in our field. I mean, you probably see this at Rush, right? Of course. And, you, you know, that's something I've always thought about, and I'm not sure that you can point to one single reason why it's this way. Um, you know, I don't think it's just that exploratory people go to neurosurgery because neurosurgery attracts exploratory people. And one of the best hypotheses I've developed that I think is at least a part of this phenomenon that you're describing is that we don't fully understand the nervous system yet. We understand how neurons work. We understand how one neuron excites or inhibits the next neuron, but the way the whole system works 
and generates our experiences is, is still very much a nascent science. And so if you think about us as people whose job it is to heal and try to repair this organ system, and you compare it to someone who operates on, like you say, the heart or operates on joints or operates on the kidneys or the bowel, these organ systems are so much better understood in their, physio in their physiology and proper functioning than the nervous system. We're, we're sitting here like we have some alien technology or, or millennia in the future after some catastrophe, we find a computer and no one knows how it works, but we're trying to repair it and keep it running without the basic knowledge of how it's supposed to function to begin with. And I think that aspect of working in a setting without complete knowledge attracts people with that drive to discover because there is still knowledge to discover even while we're doing therapeutic work. So, so you're saying like there's there are no bumpers in the lanes, there's no roadmaps. So then, it's it's literally limitless in terms of of what we we could do. But on the other hand, like I think the day will come when in medical school the physiology course will have a neurophysiology component, right? They'll teach it like they teach the kidney function, right? And then we will be at a different era in neurosurgery. That's kind of what you're saying, right? Right. I mean, right now, like I said, we know cell function, we know some basic wiring diagrams and circuits, and we know. You know, if you destroy this part of the brain, this function goes away. But things like generation of consciousness, generation of overall emotional experience, these higher order, what many people would say are the most interesting or most important nervous functions are, are still well beyond the scope of basic science understanding. You're right, but I would say that that would be era three or four because we haven't even gotten into the idea in depth, although we covered psychosurgery a little bit, where we can change people's mood or personality based on some kind of intervention, right? Let's go back to just the basic brass tacks of what we do, which is I think the other side of it is that the diseases, as Dr. Lawton mentioned, are so devastating and so common. Mm. And, and people want to say, well, there's 1% of doctors are neurosurgeons, but somehow almost everybody I ever meet knows something about some contact with a neurosurgeon, meaning how can 1% of doctors have contact with so many people? And, and, and you, you know, it's, it's very, very interesting to me that, you know, the diseases are so devastating and, and you don't even have to get the higher level function. You talk about Alzheimer's, you talk about Parkinson's disease, you talk about head injuries, concussions, things like that. Mm -hmm. And in the spine, you know, 95% of Americans are going to have spinal problems in their life, not necessarily surgery, but, you know, it is the number two reason for an unexpected or unplanned visit to a doctor. And so how many spine surgeons, there's like, you know, seven, 8,000 spine surgeons in the world, in the country, I should say. And yet you're saying 95% of people are going to need potentially someone who has some expertise in that area, not surgery, but I would, I would venture to guess, I don't want to offend chiropractors that if you really wanted to get an objective opinion on what's going on with your spine, you're probably better off going to a neurosurgeon than a chiropractor. And I'm not saying the outcome's better. I'm just saying that if you just wanted someone to tell you, oh, this is what's actually wrong with your spine, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think that that drive towards the need to help people it, it, the, the need is so enormous that people are saying, I'm willing to take some risk. And I, you hear that in Mike Lawton's voice, that desperation to get to a point where we have something to offer is real. It's, it drives all of us every day. And, and, you know, I think that that exact statement you just made, I'm willing to take some risk. We always talk about the bond, the relationship and the shared risk, the shared venture between us as surgeons and our patients. And I, I think this component of the devastating disease, 
that we don't have a good treatment for yet. That is another key, key component to this air of exploration and this drive to explore and push the boundaries. Because when you have a devastating disease process that will inevitably, we know, destroy your personality and take your life, and we can't stop it, I think that puts us in a position where A, the surgeon is much, much more comfortable offering something that may be dangerous, may be experimental, may have, like Dr. Lawton said, a 50-50 for the outcome that you could promise a patient. But then the patient and their families are also going to be more comfortable agreeing to sign up for something that risky because we can tell them with all of our science, with all of our data, with all of our experience, this is not going to end well, but we can try. And I think that makes it a lot easier ethically and morally for us to offer experimental treatments, but for the patients and families, when you have a good, thorough conversation to understand and to accept that risk for themselves as well. Yeah, but to stand up for the spine surgeons, it's almost more devastating in spine because whereas this gentleman will probably pass away in his sleep or suddenly and it's devastating altogether, the spine patients suffer interminably. So would mm. you rather, like, if you ask me what's the perfect death for me, it would be like, probably like in the middle of operating or having sex or eating a great meal or whatever, right? And I just <laughs> die and that's it, right? Boom, alive, then dead. But, you know, if you look at the spine patients, these are people who are, they're crippled and they are screaming in pain. And, and I just took care of a lady last week who, who literally said, if you, if you make me wait another hour, I will kill myself. And she was 85, right? Yeah. And so, so spine, it has its own thing. But, but let's go back to Dr. Lawton's patient. The daughters who were either in medical school or doctors or whatever, do you think they even really understood that consenting process? Because you and I were going to talk about consent during our legal miniseries. We couldn't get the right people to discuss it, right? But we really wanted to get into consent because you and I love that stuff. Do you think they even have a concept of what they were really up against? Well, that's the thing. And I mean, it, it's obviously we should say it's impossible to know because we weren't in the room. We haven't met these individuals. But if you, if you, there's, you know, there's multiple hypotheticals you can take from that question. A, these people have some limited medical knowledge, some early medical education, and, and we know a grasp of the basic science that goes into medical training. And so you could argue that if anyone can be consented, these people can be consented and, and maybe even more so understand things. But then on the other hand, we talk often on this podcast about the Dunning-Kruger effect, where a little bit of knowledge gives you the false impression that you have a lot of knowledge. And so maybe these people with early medical knowledge, they know some terms, they recognize some words, they have the impression that they understand more what's being discussed and kind of smile and nod their way through it. But really thinking that they understand more leads you to explain less. And they feel like they understand more than they really come out of it with. Again, we weren't there. And obviously, Dr. Lawton's been doing this a long time, especially in these high-risk scenarios. So I'm sure that he and his team really did take the time and really did make sure that everyone understood everything. But it is a very interesting question, one that I think we should all consider, that you should really know the person you're talking to when you're consenting them. And, and beyond just making sure they nod and say they understand, really drill in, do you understand these words I'm using? Do you understand the impact of what I'm saying. Do you understand what 50-50 really means in this scenario? 
Yeah, you know, I everybody has an approach to that. The fellows and residents in Miami know my approach to it. I don't want to get on onto it with a public discourse and it's too long conversation, but that's an excellent point, JP. So on behalf of our listeners, I want to thank you and, and Mike Lawton for another great episode. I look forward to next week's case I can't forget. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.